You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Just an exalt the Savior by the power and grace of your Holy Spirit for the sake of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Morning. Uh, early in my youth ministry career, I got together with another uh, youth worker, uh, just kind of get to know some people in the same line of ministry. And I asked her to you know, tell me how she had come to know the Lord. She said that she'd come to truly understand the gospel through a freak sports injury. Her name was Kristen, and she was playing in a soccer game. And when two people simultaneously slide tackled her from opposite sides, and both slide tackles went wrong. And in that moment, Kristen blew out both of her knees. Both injuries required surgery. So she had an extended period of time where people had to take care of her in ways that were humiliating. And in her helplessness, and in this time where people had to do for her what she could not do for herself, she came to understand what Jesus had done for her as a sinner before a holy God. Now, we typically view the story of the temptation of Jesus in Luke chapter 4 at a practical and concrete level. We see it as a story about how we can resist temptation with the help of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God as a roadmap of how we do that. And that is a true and good interpretation of the story. Simultaneously, we can also look at the story of the temptation of Jesus at a big-picture, redemptive, historic level. Um, Jesus is redeeming the failures of Israel and their mission. And he is redeeming the failures of Adam and his life in the garden. Jesus is doing for Israel and for Adam what they could not do for themselves. So today I want to look at how what Jesus has done and continues to do for us, what we cannot do for ourselves, in three parts. Jesus did for Israel, Jesus did for Adam, and Jesus does for you and for me what we cannot do for ourselves. And when we understand our relationship with Christ from this position of helplessness and dependence, there is incredible freedom and comfort. So first, Jesus does for Israel what it could not do for itself. So there are two features to notice in this passage in Luke chapter 4. The first is where this story falls in the bigger redemptive narrative of the gospel of Luke. The story immediately before the temptation of Jesus is the baptism of Christ. And in the baptism of Christ, he is anointed for his ministry. Well, the story immediately after the temptation of Jesus, uh, Jesus stands up in the temple. He reads from Isaiah. And he declares that he is the suffering servant, the Messiah, who has come into the world to save it from its sins. So both of the stories before and after the temptation story are about the launch in the min- of Jesus' ministry in the world. And so that tells us that this temptation story has something to do with Christ's ministry, particularly the beginning of Christ's ministry. We can see that in particular in the way that Jesus is fasting for 40 days. Jesus is demonstrating his total commitment to the mission of God. Now, the second feature to take notice of is the reference to the place and the duration of Jesus' temptation. In verse 1 and 2, Luke tells us that the temptation occurred in the wilderness. And that occurred for 40 days. And so these two references hearken back to the life of Israel. 
They were in the wilderness, and they were there for 40 years. And so Luke is casting Jesus in contrast to Israel. The Israelites were tested in the wilderness, but they failed. They succumbed to sin, and they fell away from the Lord. Jesus is tested in the wilderness, but he succeeded. He remained faithful to the Lord. Commentator Trent Butler describes the contrast in this manner. He writes, So as Israel wandered for 40 years in the wilderness for disobeying God, so Jesus stayed 40 days in the wilderness in complete obedience to God. And so when we combine these two features, both that this passage has something to do about the ministry of Christ and that it has something to do about contrasting him with Israel, we can see that what, what we can ascertain is that where G, Israel failed in its mission for the Lord, Christ succeeds. So in the Old Testament, when God established the national identity of Israel and the covenant with Moses, he intended for Israel to be a shining light to all of the nations and to draw all the nations to the worship of Yahweh and to the grace of God. In Exodus 19, 5 and 6, God declares, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So they are meant to emanate the glory of God through holy worship, moral integrity, social justice, and compassionate generosity, and thereby attract all of the nations to the grace and to the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel. However, notice this key word in Exodus 19.5, if, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant. Israel never succeeds. They demonstrate the powerlessness of the law and the powerlessness of human performance. And like you and me, the Israelites fall into idolatry and they forsake the Lord and they fail in their mission. And so the covenant of God's grace never makes it out of Israel. And the nations are never drawn to the worship of God. And so God sends Jesus, not as a plan B, not as a backup plan, but according to his will to do for Israel what they could not do for themselves. Jesus lives the perfect life of obedience. And through the new covenant, born of his blood on the cross, he takes the blessings and the worship of God's grace to the nations. And as Gentiles, people in this room, we are beneficiaries of Christ's faithfulness. To me, one of the most empirical proofs of the truth and validity of the Christian faith is the spread of the gospel of grace and the worship of Yahweh throughout the world. This message of coming into fellowship with God through grace that we see presented in the Old Testament, it has spread throughout the entire world as a result of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so what we are doing right here, worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel, and hearing about the grace of God, we are seeing and participating in the fulfillment of Christ's successful mission. We are witnessing the fulfillment of the mission of God. And so we can see, obviously, Jesus doing for Israel what it could not do for itself. Well, he does in a very similar light for Adam, what Adam could not do for himself. And that takes us to our second point. In Luke 4, when the devil comes to Jesus and he tempts him, his enticing and alluring voice sounds very, very familiar. It takes us back to Genesis 3 
and the temptation of Adam and Eve. And the promises, mm, they sound so similar. In Luke 5 and 6, in, uh, sorry, in Luke 4, 5 and 6, Luke writes, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. So the devil is selling Jesus a lie, but it is a very attractive lie. He is stating, I have an immediate kingdom, and I have an immediate, immediate power for you. And so the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil pledged the same to Adam and Eve, that it would give them immediate power. If you just take this fruit, you will have the power and you will have it right now. Furthermore, the devil tempts Jesus to put himself above the mission of God and above the best interests of other people. In verse 3, when he encourages Jesus to turn the stone into bread, he is calling Jesus to break the fast, which would break his total commitment to the mission of God. So Adam and Eve give in to the temptation. They put themselves first. They lose sight of the mission of God. And we all suffer as a result of Adam and Eve's failures, but not Jesus. Now, one thing that we overlook when we talk about the person and work of Jesus is that Jesus didn't just need to die for our sins on the cross. Jesus also needed to live the perfect life that Adam didn't live and that you and I cannot live. Because he had a divine, and, a divine will and nature, Jesus was able to perfectly obey the law of God and to earn the status of righteous, perfectly acceptable before the Lord. But instead of claiming that for himself, Christ chose to die on the cross so that God the Father can deem us righteous, perfectly acceptable in the eyes of God, by grace and through faith. And so we receive credit for Jesus' perfect life by grace and through faith. And so as a result... The Apostle Paul refers to Jesus as the new Adam. In spite of being hungry, in spite of being tempted in every single way, Christ resists. He goes on to live the perfect life. And Jesus does for Adam what he could not do for himself. And in doing so, Jesus does for you and for me what we cannot do for ourselves. Live a perfect life that we need for salvation. And so finally, what about you and me? Christ has done for Israel. Christ has done for Adam. And so our third point is that Christ does for you and me what we cannot do for ourselves. Now, the gospel became very clear to my friend Kristen in that freak injury. She physically could hardly do anything for herself while she was recovering from two knee injuries. And Kristen made the connection that only Jesus could do for her what she can't do for herself. And so something to understand about eternal salvation is that it's not about being a good person. The standard is not about being good. The standard is about being perfect. You have to be absolutely perfect to stand before a holy and just God. And so if, if you're a person who's trying to save yourself, you are banking on your ability to live an absolutely perfect life. And that ship sailed for all of us, like, in the last 10 minutes, right? <laughs> and so with that being said, saving faith means that you are no longer trusting in your ability, but instead you are trusting in Christ's ability as God to live the perfect life on your behalf. Something we tell our students in our youth group often is, 
Christ has already lived this week perfectly for you. You are off the hook. Uh, Notice in verse 13, though, that Luke writes, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So the devil left, but he came back. The trials continued. And the trials continue for you and for me every single day. And whether it's the temptations of the devil or our own sin or just the difficulties of life and the fallen world, we face these trials over and again. And the Holy Spirit reveals to us situations where only Christ can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Whether it's a propensity to worry or to judge or to envy or to gossip or just some sin that is out of control that you just can't stop in your life. We need the Holy Spirit to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We need the Holy Spirit to change our heart from the inside out. And he can do it. And on the other hand, too, we find ourselves with wounds or despairs and depression. We often can find ourselves in a ditch that we just cannot dig out of. And there we need Christ to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We need Christ to heal our hearts and to redeem us, and to restore us, and to give us the hope that we cannot internally manufacture. Now, sometimes the way that the Lord does for us what we can't do for ourselves is through other people in our lives. We'll all come to a point in our life, and you may be there now, where you're going to have to rely on people to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Young people, y'all are going to hate me for saying this, but when it comes to technology and social media and video games— You need your parents to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. You need your parents to regulate these things for you. They have the knowledge and the wisdom and experience. And as frustrating as that is, and as much as it drives you crazy, be encouraged because this is the work of God in your life. This is God doing for you what you cannot do for yourself when people intervene for you. And so regardless of what it is, we we all hit walls and find ourselves in places where we're stuck. And we can't move forward. And there are two things we need to know in order to trust Jesus in these situations. The first is to know that Jesus is capable. He is God Almighty. He can do whatever it is that you need. And he's willing and able to do infinitely more than you can imagine. And the second thing we have to know to trust Jesus, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, is that he is for you. That he is on your side. So I want you to think about this. Think of all the thousands, if not millions of times in your life that you have been tempted and that you have faltered. Well, Jesus was tempted in all the ways that you and I are tempted as a human being in the fallen world. And every single time he was tempted, he said no. And you know what he had on his mind every time he said no? He had your salvation in mind. He knew that he had to be a perfect sacrifice for your life. And so every single time that Jesus said no to sin and temptation, Jesus did it for you. And whatever it is that you are facing, Jesus can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Let us pray. Jesus, we pray that you would glorify yourself in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.